Hello and welcome to Laidback Lush, a little podcast where we talk about wine, beer, and spirits. We are your hosts. Gabe, a wine professional working in wine and spirits education. And I'm Michael, a former wine salesman as well as vineyard worker. And today we are excited to talk about another not too well known or too well understood wine term. Although this isn't just a wine term, because this can really apply to a lot of different industries, including coffee, rice, chocolate. Why don't you give us our word of the day? The word of the day is terroir. And is that an English word? No, it's not. It is a French (laughs) word. Coming from the French word terre, which means earth or soil. Or region. Or region. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very interesting little topic here because the definitions vary so much and this is an ongoing discussion between experts enthusiasts and those in the industry as well as the many people who love to enjoy wine and give it their two cents yes a lot of different definitions like i said they float around but we're going to be going into the things that we see consistently talked about uh, as far as the definition the things that contribute to it and some of the individual factors as well and how they can affect it. And maybe a little bit of our own opinion strewn in there I mean, for good measure. It, honestly, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have to be our own opinion because, <laughs> again, there's not a set definition in the industry. There's Correct. a lot of consistency among like experts yeah, and, uh, and a decent amount of consistency among critics. But really, it's just not an established thing. Yeah. Let's get into it. Some of the things that people do ask is... Is terroir a real thing? And it is. Why don't you tell us what terroir is in general? Okay, so terroir, as I will define it, is that terroir is the factors in the microclimate of a particular wine region or vineyard slash vineyards. This is combined with the human interventions through various winemaking methods that impart wines with a unique signature in their aromas and flavors. This signature reflects the place that it came from and cannot be reproduced elsewhere. Yes. I think that summarizes it pretty amazingly, actually. And that All right. Well, uh, yeah, good episode, so. everyone. Good to talk to you again. Yeah. We'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and we honestly, we could just stop it there. But we do want to talk a little bit more about yes. uh, some of the specifics yes. of that. But I think there, that definition... There's a lot more to terroir than just that. Yeah. yeah. The point of any topic that's this expansive, you're going to be reductive to Ye- some certain yeah. extent. Yeah. The more you dig into the wine world, the deeper it gets. Yeah. You're never going to come out on the other side and be like, okay, I get it. It's a fractal print of wormholes. <laughs> wow. Actually, that sounds awesome. Do you have like wallpapers for that? I wish. Gosh, fractal prints of wormholes. I'm into it. Uh, but yeah, it's accurate because so many of these factors also will kind of interplay with each other and they will uh, cue off of each other or rather they'll impact each other. But your definition lines up with so many different people in the industry that do actually have some some pretty good qualifications. Some of them might have informed my opinion a little bit. Yeah. Some of the ones I was looking at were R.L. Lewison from Understanding Terroir in Theory and Practice. There was Jay Robinson from the Oxford Companion to Wine out of the Oxford University Press. And of course, R.S. Jackson, who uh, was from the Academic Press, publishing his Wine Science Principles and Applications back in 2000. And a lot of them concur with that. It is both climate and people. 
as well as the soil. Yes. So let's get into this, though, because a lot of the definition's inconsistency is perhaps generated by its history, because it's only really becoming a sharper scientific study in more recent years. We haven't mm -hmm. had the ability to quantify it as we do now. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about what began the observation of terroir? This is a very brief history of the term, so forgive me for the brevity, but the notion that different growing sites produce different profiles of wine when those vineyards are cultivated developed as early as ancient Greece and Rome. We know that the Romans had their Falernian wines, which were grown on south-facing hillsides that they noticed produced for some reason better wine. The Greeks would mark amphorae with the city that the amphorae came from so they could keep track of the variations within these different vessels and how the location would affect the wine. But the concept of terroir itself didn't really come into play until we fast forward into Middle Ages time frame. We have the Benedictine and the Cistercian monks in Burgundy that are cultivating vineyards, and they are developing the concept of vineyard-specific distinctions, and they are the ones who came up with terroir, the term to explain that. They also called them climats, which is still in use in Burgundy today, fun fact. This helped formalize the idea of terroir as being this very um, site-specific thing that impacts the outcome of a wine and its overall profile. But they didn't, again, as you said, necessarily have the scientific ability to study it as thoroughly as we can now. And so I think because terroir has kind of stayed in the same general definition for so long, that's part of where a little bit of the vagueness comes from in modern usage. Perhaps one of the biggest kind of boons for the Cistercian monks was the fact that they did employ writing. Mm -hmm. They were willing to actually write things out, and they considered themselves and were considered at the time to be kind of keepers of culture. It really shows the value of being able to get your thoughts out on paper before you start getting your observations in order, because before that point... You, you, you can just say you're talking about our early episodes. It's okay. Yeah. Well, no, we, the sad thing is that we did actually make summaries back then. Please, please don't listen to our old episodes. They're yeah. really bad. They're, they'll go into the, the luscious vault at some point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they were the first ones that actually were willing to write down specific climates, specific mm -hmm. areas, and to measure out okay, what is the weather like? What is the temperature like? How strong are the winds? Yeah. What's the soil like? How high up on the hill is this? And that created the foundation for that thought process. But nowadays, we get to actually do some measuring. We get to actually go into things like satellite imaging. We get to actually do topography in a way that is unprecedented in yeah. history. So uh, with the refining resolution of human perception as it relates to climate and practices, we need to get the definition a little bit more refined as well. Well, why don't we start going into then some of these factors that make up terroir so we can start narrowing this down. Sounds great. So let's start with what gave the term terroir coming from ter meaning soil, its name soil. This is to this day 
still considered to be by many people the primary factor in terroir. Uh, I personally will push back on that a little bit, and I'll get into that here in a second. But just as an overview of soil and what soil does to wine. So obviously, soil is going to directly impact the development of vines in a very, you know, tangible way. You would not have vines if there were not soil. Plants need soil to grow, right? So what are some of the key defining factors within that relationship? is going to be our heat regulation or retention and our water retention, or lack thereof, depending on where you are. So for example, in Mosul, they have dark slate soils. Mosul would probably be a little too cold to really ripen grapes to their full potential were it not for those soils, because that black is going to absorb heat from the sun And it's going to reflect that back onto the grapes. It's going to help keep the roots in a good condition. Very important that those soils are dark. Um, Mm -hmm. In other areas, like in the places where they grow sherry, they have very light colored soils. And that helps with ripening the grapes, even over ripening the grapes, because the lightness will reflect sunlight and heat back on to the grapes as well. For water drainage. That is very important for vineyard selection in any region. You kind of want to make up for what your rainfall is doing. If you have very low rainfall throughout the year, you might want soil that can retain a little more water so your grapes are kept healthy. If you have a wet region, you want soil that will drain as much as possible because grapes don't like when their roots, at least on the topsoil, are too wet. You want them to have to burrow down for water sources. Yeah more than you want the water to be just standing in your vineyard. You really don't want that. We also have pH of the soil. Now, this correlates to the acidity in wine. So a higher soil pH, meaning the soil is more alkaline, will mean a higher acid content or a lower pH in the final wine normally. We also have our nutrients, of course. This is the main thing that soil does for any plant. Just very quickly... The main minerals that are beneficial or most beneficial for grapes are going to be nitrogen. This helps with the overall vine growth and development. Too much can lead to too much vine vigor, so that might be something you want to avoid. But in a lot of places, they actually put nitrogen into the soil on a consistent basis, normally Mm -hmm. an annual basis, to make sure that it's at a proper level for the grapes to develop properly. Phosphate helps with the root development. It can inhibit magnesium uptake if too much is present, which will impede the ripening, but we'll get to magnesium here in a second. Potassium. This will help with the vine's overall metabolism. It enriches the sap, which makes for a heartier grapevine. It's essential for the development of the following year's crop, so you want to make sure you have good potassium content in your soils. However, we did discover with fertilizers after World War II that too much potassium can lead to too high of yields and therefore lower quality wine. Yeah, Iron is also present and is needed for healthy photosynthesis. Too little can cause what's called chlorosis, which will cause the leaves to brown and yellow in color and the vines will struggle to do photosynthesis. That is really, 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 really bad yeah. for grapevines. Because you want those grapes as ripe as they possibly can, and obviously, plants need photosynthesis to accomplish that. Back to magnesium for a second. This is an essential mineral constituent of chlorophyll. So going back to the phosphate thing, 
inhibiting magnesium uptake, uh, if too much phosphate is present, can also cause chlorosis because the chlorophyll are not being made by the plant. Then we finish out with calcium. This feeds the root system, and this will help neutralize acidity, so this will lower the overall acidity of a final wine. And this can inhibit iron uptake if too much is present, so you kind of have to find a balancing act. All of this is really a balancing act. Terroir overall is a balancing act, if you want to look at it that way. Yeah. So basically, uh, a lot of these things, the soil content might actually already have them in amounts that are ideal or close to ideal, depending on where they are found. Uh, especially in the case of something like volcanic soil, that's just going to naturally end up having more phosphate in it. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons why different sites might be evaluated as having just different factors, different things that are naturally going to be present before a site is decided on. But we do want to talk about minerality in general, because there is a difference between minerality as in minerals being present, minerality as in the minerality of the soil, and the perception of minerals inside of the flavor profile of a wine. And this is a very important discussion for terroir specifically, because a lot of people talk about tasting the soils that a wine was made from. We're going to be party poopers. We're sorry. That's not really possible. At least with with (laughs) our current understanding of the palate, that is not possible. Yeah. The way that grapevines metabolize these minerals leaves a fraction of the wine. I believe it's less than 1% in the total wine. Now, Kokumi sensors might be able to interact with calcium in particular to impart some some impression maybe of mineral it's, but that hasn't really been studied extensively so we don't know if that's a one for one well so so the taste receptors for kokumi they don't necessarily show up as a flavor they show up as an augment to other flavors mm-hmm. they change your perception of other things now how much these minerals are contributing to that is largely unstudied But especially calcium would likely have an effect, but the effect might be completely unrelated to your perception of, say, flint or graphite or uh, something along those lines. They're not going to, it's not going to be a one to one thing. It could be a contributing factor, it could Mm -hmm. not be. Yeah. And also, so uh, Constantine Baum, I've mentioned him on the podcast before has a video discussing minerality and his opinions on it. And a a good point that he made is rocks and minerals don't really have flavor. You you can't lick a rock and really taste anything except for what might be on the rock. Because it doesn't come apart. Correct. But there is a... So there's a concept in perfumery. And forgive me for, again, referencing perfumery. I do like perfume. There's a concept of notes versus accords. And a note is an aroma compound that has a certain smell so there's certain aroma compounds that might smell like let's say strawberry right for more complex aromas like uh, rum is a very common ingredient you'll see in a lot of perfumes that's an accord that's where a sensory chemist has taken different aroma compounds and made them into something that your nose perceives as rum yeah and That, when we say minerality, because I use minerality to describe wines, that's Mm. more what we're talking about. It's like, uh, for example, I've had wines that had a very strong petrichor flavor, which uh, if you don't know what petrichor is, that's the smell after it rains, basically. So it's, it's less minerality as in I am tasting the soil that this came from. It's more 
I am getting the impression of how my brain perceives rocks and how they smell and taste in a more metaphorical context. Yeah. Because there are things in wine called esters. We've talked about esters before. You can have something that is going to be, you know, your phenolics, your carotenoids, uh, your biogenetic amines. All of those are going to be almost a one-to-one. Like if you have banana, it's going to be a very specific type of compound. Correct. But then there is this other concept where, you know, you do have just these things that come together. And as they come together, you get those kind of simulated things because mm-hmm. we've definitely smelled the the dust of flint yeah yeah you know something there are, there are wines that just smell dusty to me yeah 100 yeah. percent. so is minerality a thing yes yes it is but it's also not a thing in the way a lot of people describe it as yeah a thing. it's yeah. more an illusory thing that happens because of the uniqueness of wine because of its properties yeah are there minerals in wine yes but not geological ones mm-hmm. there are nutritional minerals yes. inside of wine that can be impacted by the soil or rather it is going to be a result of the soil but it's not going to be the soil yes and speaking of subjects that maybe require a little bit more study to fully understand Michael really enjoys studying mycelial networks, (laughs) and we are discovering in the wine world that mycelial networks actually might be a pretty integral part of a vineyard. So do you want to tackle that one, Michael? Yeah, sure. So kind of under, I guess that would be, uh, if, if we describe this as being the soil, I would describe the next set of influences as being more ecological. Mm-hmm. And that's going to include things like bacteria, which we are discovering are very unique to specific places, but we are having trouble figuring out how that directly impacts the flavor itself. And it also includes fungi, specifically fungi called arbiscular microzoral fungi. And I'm just going to call those guys AMs for short because that's a mouthful. Yeah. But essentially they form a symbiotic relationship with the grapevines themselves that allows them to exchange nutrients. So you can have phosphorus, nitrogen, potassium, and they will exchange those to the plant in exchange for carbohydrates from the plant. It's really kind of cool because this can uh, allow higher grape yields, or if you are controlling the grape yields, which hopefully you are, it can lead to better fruit quality. So overall, the relationship between uh, AM, fungi, and wine is one of mutual benefit. It's fungi-enhancing grapevine growth, nutrient uptake, and wine quality, and ultimately it contributes to the overall success of wine production. And this happens pretty much in every single vineyard. Yeah, we uh, so we actually, in understanding more about mycelial networks, are, well, some producers are actually looking at not tilling their soils anymore because that does it tear up the, the network, yeah. Yeah, and like I said, if you ever, you know, go in and you, you do stick a shovel into the to the forest floor and you see those, like... They are established. They actually help with water retention as well. Mm -hmm. So disturbing that is actually tantamount to like disturbing grass fields because that's what locks the soil in place. So if you're able to do that without tilling, you're also helping to not have as much surface runoff, which is one of our biggest problems right now. Yeah. So that's a, a cool little ecological factor that contributes to that as well. But let's let's talk a little bit about some of the more overarching things that go on, some of the more uh, big picture things that end up affecting a grapevine. 
Yeah, so I'm going to kind of fly through these because each of these could honestly be its own episode. Uh, So I'm going to give some quick definitions, but Michael, if you think of anything, definitely feel free to add. So we're going to start with our temperatures. So temperatures are micro and they are macro. So you can have an overall hot climate all the way down to how your vineyard is affected by its own little microclimate of factors. Now, big factors that will affect heat are diurnal ranges and your continentality. Diurnal ranges are going to be the difference between the average day temperature and the average night temperature. So the higher the range in general, meaning you're going to have hotter days and colder nights, means slower ripening for your grapes because the coolness of the night will cool them down and the metabolism will slow down a little bit. And so you have a little bit more of an extension on your ripening. Uh, It can help avoid grapes getting too ripe without reaching a full phenolic development. And what I mean by phenolic development is everything is physiologically ripe and at its uh, full development potential, I guess, for lack of a better way of saying it. If things ripen too quickly, sometimes some of those things can be thrown out of whack just because the grape ripened so fast. Kind of the inverse with a lower diurnal range, so the day and night temperatures are closer together, the grapes will ripen more quickly, obviously. And again, that potential of just reaching too ripe too quickly can happen, particularly during harvest. Mm. In areas that are hot with a low diurnal range in particular, if it is harvest time, you have sometimes hours to work with before your grapes are overripe. Mm-hmm. And, and you really don't want overripe grapes. <laughs> yeah. So continentality is the difference between your seasonal temperatures, particularly your summer and your winter months. This will determine the length of your growing season and how much heat for a grape to develop in that time is allowed. In areas with higher continentality, you have higher temperature variations, which usually mean a short time in between your summer and winter weather. So very short autumns. That shortens your ripening potential. And it also normally means that your window at the beginning of the year as well is shorter for your harvest season because winter lasts for longer. So in these regions, you might need later budding grapes to avoid frost, but grapes that also ripen early, which can be hard to find. A lower continentality, though, allows for longer growing seasons, and this is due to a lower temperature variation with your extremes, and this means longer autumns. So you can extend your ripening period longer into autumn, You also have hopefully a little bit more grace at the start of the growing period for your fruit set and everything to go properly. We also have latitude. Now, latitude affects many things, but primarily it affects, again, the overall temperature. So, you know, the farther away from the equator you are, usually the colder your region is going to be. And obviously heat plays, as I just said, a very important part in grape development. Latitude will also affect things like your sunlight angles, Uh, so the intensity of the sun that reaches grapes is a very important factor in grapevines. It also affects your daylight hours. In a lot of places, particularly uh, more extremes in latitude, you might have shorter days. That's something you have to factor in to your grape growing and hopefully getting them to full ripeness. 
Getting into more vineyard-specific factors for terroir, though, we have slopes. Slopes are the big thing everyone talks about. Well, and and this is probably one of the things that is talked about the most because it was one of the things that they noticed earliest inside of Burgundy. Mm -hmm. Um, Anytime that you are looking at a map of Burgundy, you'll actually see it even separated into the different places of elevation in the slope and the specific angle Mm -hmm. at which the slope is going to be facing. So let's let's talk about uh, let's talk about slope. So slopes are important for a myriad of reasons. To start with, mid slope to the top of the slope, but preferably mid slope in many places, provides the most direct sunlight. So the grapes are getting the maximum exposure to the sun for the most photosynthesis to happen, which is very good for your grapes. We also have that planting from mid slope up to the top of the slope can help mitigate frost risk. Now, if you're in an area actually like Burgundy, for example, because Burgundy can be prone to late frosts, cold air, as you hopefully know, falls and hot air rises. So that really cold frost air that could destroy buds, let's say, and prevent fruit set from happening, you lose a whole vineyard of grapes. If you have a slope and that cool air is just going to the bottom of the slope and pooling there instead of sitting on your grapes directly, that can help hopefully prevent that frost from really setting in and destroying your grapes. Yeah, it creates an average temperature as opposed to any one extreme. Exactly. And there are also other reasons why you would want it to be mid-slope as well that have to do with soil drainage as well, like yes. we talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because obviously water's going to filter down that slope yeah you don't want it where it collects you also don't want it where it well hits and then leaves very quickly exactly we also have the aspect of the slope now the aspect of the slope is whatever cardinal direction that slope is facing this will affect the amount and the intensity of the sunlight that that vineyard receives so here in the northern hemisphere Normally, you want a somewhat eastern or south-facing slope, ideally in a lot of places, a southeastern-facing slope. This extends the amount of time in the morning because the sun rises in the east, right? So you have maximum amount of sunlight hitting those grapes for as long as possible, and facing south also helps with that sunlight exposure. Mm -hmm. And it helps, again, with the intensity of that sunlight as well. If you're in a hotter climate, though, let's say, so certain areas in Spain, you might actually want to plant your vineyards facing north because since it's so hot, you might want to do anything and everything you can to prevent your grapes from ripening too quickly, which the heat plus sunlight will just do. It'll just just do do it. it. Yeah. We also, for vineyards, have elevation. And this one in particular, Definitely in the future, we'll probably get its own episode because it's a very fascinating subject. But in summary, elevation, if you've ever been on a mountain, you know that the farther you go up, the cooler it is, right? So particularly Argentina, for the most part, plants in areas of higher elevation. This will cool down that really hot desert climate that Argentina has and allow for vineyards to even really exist in the first place. The higher you go, obviously, the cooler you get. And that will also help with the length of uh, your diurnal ranges, or the intensity, I should say, of your diurnal ranges. Higher elevations tend to have higher diurnal ranges. 
it does make for more intense sunlight as well. The higher you go, typically the more intense the sun is. Which a lot of groups that are planting on mountains will also try to increase the slope extremity Mm -hmm. in order to account for that. If you can think of the sun as, you know, coming over that horizon, you don't want for things to be in a plateau. Otherwise, you've basically created the same problem. You've actually decreased the amount of sunlight it'll get. So in order to capitalize on that, you actually want a nice steep slope, which is why in our pre-rot episode, even those places like inaccessible to machines, Mm -hmm. these grapes that are going to be high quality in these areas have to be hand harvested. Exactly. And so again, all of these factors up at elevation really help you extend that ripening period, even in really hot regions and make for very high quality grapes if you know what you're doing at least yeah it could be very easy to ruin all of that yeah 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 (laughs) or to fall to your death (laughs) also that yeah you know some of these are very precarious god i wonder what the average insurance policy is like for those workers i have no idea well although i will say most people at least in the united states that die in a winery die from uh, co2 exposure oh no kidding during fermentation i did not know that yep happens uh, in california every year there's normally a handful of deaths from co2 exposure that that's very sad it is very sad that's a that's a rabbit hole a very sad rabbit hole yes Uh, that that will not be the topic of the next episode no it will not be (laughs) no i'm putting my foot down right now we're gonna go talk about wine and death (laughs) yay my favorite and our goth uh listenership just skyrocketed All right, we 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 need to get off the death yeah, topic. Get so, off the death topic. So uh, rainfall <laughs> that brings life and happiness to the vineyard, like tears from the sky. Oh my no, gosh. No. <laughs> okay, the cure. Calm down. Gosh. So yeah, rainfall. This is another huge thing that can make or break anything. We have tons yeah. of problems with this in Virginia, especially. Yeah. Rain is complicated. So rain is not a thing in the wine world, as with most of these, where you can say like. There's an ideal amount of rain. There's an ideal amount of rain per region. So you have areas like us that are really humid and tend to experience a lot of rainfall during the year. That can lead to our grapes getting what's called waterlogged at harvest, where they become essentially diluted because there's so much water in the grapes, which makes for a more diluted wine. Or you can have the inverse of that, where it's hot and dry and you barely get any water and your grapes might struggle to grow at all because there's no water available to them. So as with all things, there's balance. I mentioned humidity here in Virginia. That plays a huge factor in your rot risk and making sure your grapes are not rotting quite literally off the vine if the humidity is too high. Drier climates do tend to be better for grapes or at least vinifera vines for that reason. Uh, But yeah, rainfall, you wouldn't have grapes without it, but it varies by region and can be a complicating factor if you're not careful. Well, and that can be affected by a a lot of things, including just like how close you are to the ocean, uh, other bodies of water, how far inland you are. Uh, If Mm -hmm. your area is mountainous, the valley floor, if you're there, then you're going to end up having that pooling effect you were talking about. And the way that this happens can also be affected by soil. Like we said, there are a lot of interplay as far as like how the drainage is going to work. If you are near a mountain, you know, weather can be changed very quickly. You'll mm-hmm. have water just pooled right on out. One of the biggest examples of this being like the difference between Chile and Argentina yeah, uh, because of that massive mountain region. Exactly. Which acts as a rain shield for Argentina. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It all kind of plays together, but I hope that that gives you a kind of good summary of at least the more physical factors mm-hmm. that are 
there as part of the environment. But there is something that needs to be discussed, which yes. uh, a couple of different schools of thought are going into the discussion of what terroir is and what terroir isn't. Correct. I want to be respectful in this because I understand that this comes from a place of like enthusiasm about nature. Well, maybe we should preface this by saying what, what we're about to say is about, which is the human element yeah. of winemaking. It's the human element. Yeah. A lot of people, and I think that this comes from a place of enthusiasm for some of the great things that we just discussed, like how those things end up showing up in a wine, but they try to act as though humans aren't involved whatsoever. Uh, even if they are changing the yeast. Yeah, uh, or, or with, with terroir expression, at least. Exactly. Yeah. So the human factor has to be observed because yeah. without humans, you do not have wine. Well, and, and so I think for both of us, I, I can hopefully speak for both of us here and saying that... You can certainly try. <laughs> <laughs> the appeal to nature here is a bit of a naturalistic fallacy, which we discussed more in depth in the Natural Wines episode. But to summarize that point here... A lot of people in the natural wine scene talk about getting back to nature, quote unquote, with their grape growing. And I, I respect that to a degree. However, what I think sometimes that crowd forgets is that grapes do not, quote unquote, naturally fall into a winemaking vessel, ferment, age, and then bottle themselves. That, that's, not, that's not a natural process. Strictly speaking, nature doesn't do that. We do that, right? Even the vineyards themselves in Burgundy wouldn't exist had the monks not cultivated them to begin with, right? So this exactly. all started with human intervention, which allowed us to then discover the natural impact of the world around the vineyard. Well, and even Constantine Baum mentions in his video, which he has a great little video on it, he mentions the fact that it's like, yeah, no, terracing. Yeah. Even just terracing. That's exactly that completely changes the interaction of the soil with mm -hmm. the surrounding environment. Yes. Uh, from an architectural standpoint, I guess you could call it. Yeah. So that is why here on Layback Lush, we are adding in and, and do consider the human element to be a very key and important part of terroir. Let's go a little bit into how humans impact the grapes. So vineyard cultivation itself. Starting a vineyard in and of itself is human intervention. We have things like site selection. So all of those natural factors we just talked about, if you go to a plot of land, you want to factor in every single one of those to make sure your grapes are going to be as good as they possibly can be. Mm -hmm. And that is a human thing. We have our vine training. So we talked about this in our previous episode, things like uh, your trellising, things like monitoring for your planting density, the yields how you're pruning both your canopy and the grapes themselves for, again, your yields. Canopy management, how are you allowing your vines to grow? Are you allowing them to grow on trellises? Are you doing goblet training? How much foliage are you allowing for your grapes to get maximum focus on the actual clusters of grapes themselves? All these things are human element. Terraces, as you just mentioned, have mm -hmm. to be carved by people or mm -hmm. else they wouldn't exist naturally. Yeah, they have to carve that out. They mm -hmm. have to do that. Yep. There's also co-planting with cover mm -hmm. crops. Yeah. Uh, this is especially popular with people who are doing things like uh, natural wine, where mm -hmm. they want to take more of a holistic, ecological way of doing things. Yeah, it's 
if you can do it right, it is a very good and from what I understand, actually very effective practice of keeping your soil fertilized properly without having to intervene so much with fertilizers themselves. Oh yeah. Well, even the practice of not doing the tilling, Mm -hmm. that's going to contribute to better nitrogen content and also better nitrogen type content because of the way that fungi uh, processes nitrogen. Mm -hmm. But anyways, uh, we also have irrigation. Yes. This is huge because certain industries of wine wouldn't exist exist (laughs) without this one. And and this is also one people get kind of snobbish about sometimes. Oh, really? Yeah. Some people like, if you're irrigating, you don't have terroir. And it's kind of like, well... (laughs) Yeah, but you also wouldn't have a vineyard if we're going to go on that route. And I I keep going back to the like, you wouldn't have the vineyard thing. But like, it's such an obvious point to me. Yeah. It's just like, (laughs) at what point do you say that the human intervention is actually starting to damage it? Yeah. But we we can go into our philosophy of that a little bit later. Yeah. Again, all of these could be their own episode. Getting water to the spot. Like when I was working on a vineyard, it was in a place that was very arid. Yeah. If they hadn't developed actually drip irrigation. They wouldn't be growing grapes. They wouldn't be growing grapes whatsoever. It only rains two times a year there anyway. So like, come on, guys. And uh, then to kind of in the vineyard side of things, well, actually, sorry, there's one more thing about vineyard cultivation, uh, but that has to do with grapes themselves. Uh, But fertilizers and sprays. Yeah. Are you doing it? Are you not? Are you doing? uh, So I know Afton Mountain here, the winemaker likes to do like little tea tinctures because he doesn't like to spray as much as he can get away with. And so in order to keep certain pests and things away, he'll make like teas with bark and stuff that are known to be kind of like pest repellents and he'll so spray like, the grapes with that like peppermint and stuff e- exactly like that, yeah guessing. yeah a lot of people don't like sprays i don't like them myself either but they are necessary in a lot of places you have some permaculturalists who plant flowers that mm-hmm. attract wasps yeah to try and come and like kill more aphids yeah. and stuff like that yeah so. it, it, it's a whole ecosystem but it doesn't uh, like any because even if you are grabbing from the area you're still planting it there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, uh, But then we'll get into the grapes themselves. Yes. What grapes are you even growing? Mm-hmm. So varieties, different grape varieties more specifically, tend to be suited to specific climates. So for example, we have Pinot Noir, which very much likes a cool, dry climate with a long ripening period. It has thin skins, so it's very susceptible to rot, so it likes dry, and it likes cool. It can tolerate moderate, so Oregon, Washington, and some of the more moderate areas. Uh, New Zealand can have areas that are much more moderate, but it likes those climates more specifically. You also have the conundrum, which a lot of winemakers are going into now, especially people that want to do organic farming in the new world. Do you do vinifera, native vines, or hybrids? That is a whole debate in the wine world, which we will not get into here. But that is another choice you have to make for the grapes that you're growing. And each of these will express different parts of the terroir, respectively. You also have to factor in which clones of grapes you're putting in. Because clones, if you don't know, are... Think of them as like subgenres of a specific grape variety. So... Pinot Noir has hundreds of clones, if not mm-hmm. thousands at this point. Yeah. And each one of those clones is going to be better suited to maybe be uh, more drought resistant or more disease resistant or more tolerant of hotter climates. Yeah. 
all these different factors that goes into what grapes are being planted. That also helps express the terroir and your grape cultivation being successful. Which, by the way, there are actually entire marketplaces where you can select them by number. Yep. And oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, it's These are all very extensively cataloged at this point. Yeah. And if you're not familiar with cloning, uh, we'll probably do an episode on it at, at some point. Yeah. Um, I did release a video on our TikTok at Laidback Lush on it. That's very camp. So please be kind. Uh, <laughs> but it does it does describe what cloning is and how that's accomplished. But yeah. that's another consideration that you have to make. It can impact flavor. Yeah. But a lot of times it has to do with how is this going to, how is this specific clone going to address an environmental factor mm -hmm. that is going to impact how it grows? Yeah. And you are correct in that there's often very minute flavor differences amongst these clones. I would say to most people, even to probably a lot of professionals, you wouldn't really taste the difference on uh -huh. average. But there are a couple there, of there groups that there are some yeah. that are known for certain flavor characteristics and yeah. or, or or maybe I should say accentuating certain characteristics of that grape more than other clones might. Now that we also know that you are having to select what type of even clone that you're going to be using inside of this place that you've chosen and started to cultivate and all of that, what else are we seeing as a contributor to the expression of wine that is completely human in nature? Yeah. So we have the winemaking process itself. You can go back and listen to any episode we've done that is related to winemaking for the full breakdown of this. But let's just say oak, for example. Things like the time a wine spends in oak, the oak species, all impart a different flavor profile to the wine. And that kind of ties into winemaking as tradition, and that being also part of the sense of terroir in a region, right? So in Spain, we have the aging system that most of the country falls under of Crianza up to Gran Reserva, spending various amounts of time in barrel. Again, winemaking traditions can influence the grapes that are used. Bordeaux is a good example of this. You have your five noble grapes of Bordeaux, right? You have Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and Burgundy. You have Australian Shiraz. Regions are known usually for certain kinds of grapes. You have things like your aging times, as I already said, also your aging vessels. Most places, this is going to be oak, but also uh, in some new world areas in particular, there's a lot of experimentation about Stainless steel aging, concrete aging, even amphorae are now making a comeback. I, I do want to try some that are in amphorae. Yeah, well, and amphorae now are being made to a much higher standard than ancient Greece was using. 100%. So, so I mean, I'm, I'm actually hope. very interested to try some. Uh, Wine for Normal People, I'm very sorry, I don't remember the exact title of the episode, but they interviewed a woman who owns an amphora business and her whole ideology and the technique. And it sounds very interesting. And I really want to try a wine from one of her products. Hello, dear listener. So the episode of Wine for Normal People that I'm talking about here is episode 379. The title is The Main Alternatives to Oak, All About Concrete Eggs and Amphoras. Really good episode. Highly recommend giving it a listen as well as this episode if you're curious about some alternative aging vessels. But anyway, let us get back to the episode. We also have things like uh, Lee's Contact. Champagne is kind of defined in a very real way by the fact that it's Lee's oh, yeah. aging. 
Muscadet Savre et Main Surly, which is from the Loire Valley. It's from the Muscadet grape. That is a traditional wine of the Loire that is specifically Surly aged. That's an expression of the terroir of that area. We have malolactic fermentation slash conversion. Uh, so California Chardonnay, even Chardonnays from Burgundy will also have this. And also and carbonic maceration. Carbonic maceration. Beaujolais. Beaujolais, yeah. So like these all come from traditions in the region. And these traditions didn't come out of nowhere. They are things that help accentuate the expression of that wine from that climate you know, hopefully these techniques are being used to accentuate the raw material of grapes that was informed by, yes, all those natural climate factors. But again, you have to make them shine if you want a truly great wine. And all of these winemaking techniques, and there's so many more that we could get into, will help with that. Well, and that brings up an interesting topic, because when we're talking about these kind of things that are developed through a history of people noticing a note, noticing some aspect of the wine that they are looking at and they're thinking, how can I accentuate this? Oh, well, if I do the fermentation technique like this, or if I do punch downs, or if I do a specific type of aging, or for example, like, you know, my favorite place ever, Madeira, mm -hmm. we're going to literally just cook this over and over again. I think Constantine said it pretty well. He said that terroir cannot be made in the winery but it can be destroyed there correct yeah uh, i i love that phrase because it is so concise but then there's the question of if your region does not have a specific tradition that is associated with the area that you're growing in mm -hmm. then does it have terroir yeah and, and apparently that's the thing that people are actually asking I would say it does because you still have all those natural influences and you have people. I mean, this is where Virginia is kind of at right now, right, is we're trying to figure out what works. What can we make into tradition? And you can still identify some tells for Virginia wine. Our, our wines tend to be more, quote unquote, old world in style because of our climate. We have certain grape varieties that are showing more promise here, like Petit Mansang, Cabernet Franc, Tanat. Uh, everyone does Chardonnay, but Chardonnay does well anywhere. So that's, that doesn't count really. Um, but, you know, we, we are discovering these things and we're trying to develop that sense of quote unquote Virginia wine. But also there's a lot of room for experimentation, even within a region. Not every wine is going to taste the same. And that's what makes terroir fun because you can see the subtle differences within a region. And then you can even compare the macro differences between, let's say, Australia, Shiraz, and Syrah from the Rhone Valley, right? Like, that that's where yeah. terroir becomes fun for me. Well, exactly. It's because it's like the different expressions of what this particular thing can do when it is brought out from these places. And with the cultural aspect of it, it's that the places are actually not separable from the people. Mm -hmm. And I could see that from a naturalist standpoint, that, that natural fallacy standpoint as being a disappointment. But when you really think about it, it's kind of even more exciting mm -hmm. to me. I also think that it's important for us to never settle on what we believe would be the best thing ever in exclusion to the ability to experiment. Well, because you don't want everyone just making the same wine over and over again. That's boring. Well, and even if it's a, a different wine for a particular region, let's say it's Virginia, mm -hmm. you know, you need to have that variability and the ability for people to really think outside of the box. Yeah. 
Otherwise, we wouldn't have had a return to some things that were considered no longer in vogue, like skin contact wine. Exactly. So I think uh, I think that a kind of a looser definition, but also one that more appreciates what people are doing as things are now is more the necessary thing, especially since with climate change, we don't necessarily have a time frame we can point to and say, oh, well, this has to be the expression of this place. Yeah. It's that it is the expression of the place. I mean, Bordeaux just greenlit several new varieties that are allowed because of climate change. Did that destroy the terroir Bordeaux? No. I mean, for me, no. Yeah. Because it has to be constantly updated at that point. Yeah, exactly. So what is terroir? Art. Arts. It's It's life. You wouldn't get it. It's It's birth. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is the sun and the moon and the celestial constellations. <laughs> According to our biodynamics guys, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> no, uh, it, a terroir, I, I think, uh, I like the way you put it, that terroir is the intersection of people, land, and the vines, yeah. and, and the climate. Yeah, and how that can be identified mm-hmm. uniquely. How, how it gives that wine the sense of the place that it came from. Exactly. Yes. Well, I think that is a good place to wrap up and move on in our next episode to maybe not something that is poorly explained, but is often poorly understood. Yeah, this is one that's near and dear to my heart. Yes. We are talking about doing some wine and food pairing finally. Yes. <laughs> After two years of saying we were going to do it, because I'm pretty sure we mentioned doing a food and wine pairing in one of the first couple of episodes and we just never did. Yeah. Well, also, we never cook together. That's true. Yeah. We, we have to fix that. I also don't, I, this is bad, but I actually normally don't really do like wine pairings with my food. Oh, really? Yeah. You're not just drinking all the time? How can you even <laughs> no. be a wine expert? <laughs> Listen, I studied a lot. <laughs> I do my reading. That's I do how. my reading. Yeah, I, I had the theory. Oh, my goodness. Well, I, I wish I'd had more of that before they started just giving me tons and tons of wines. <laughs> I might have actually been able to catalog some things in my brain a bit better. Well, hey, we can, we can catalog our sommelier skills for next episode and start diving into how are you going to pair your steak or your salad or your crab rangoons yeah and if you guys want you can go ahead and dm us at laidback lush your favorite dish oh yeah that'd be fun yeah i think that that would be a lot of fun if you have a wine that you have never been able to pair successfully that would also be a fun challenge so favorite dish and a wine that's either your favorite or that you're curious about because you haven't had success yet. Yes. I yes. love that. Yeah, go ahead and DM us at Laidback Lush on pretty much every platform, mm-hmm. uh, including Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Yes. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll maybe we'll give a little cover of it, uh, you know, do a little section. Yeah. 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 Sounds like good. Sounds good. Sounds good. Sounds like good. Sounds like good. Sounds like good. <laughs> what in the 90s? Sounds like good, dude. Sounds like good. (laughs) Well, thank you guys so much for joining us while we discussed terroir. And we hope that you've enjoyed this episode. We appreciate your listenership. Yes. And we will talk to you next time. I have been Gabe. I have been Michael. Cheers. Cheers, guys.